This is episode 237 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Epithelial and Organoid Systems, Dr. Ryan Condor. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon in a room. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you like the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. Be honest. We can take a bit of criticism. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Ryan Condor from Stem Cell Technologies on the podcast to talk about his research on epithelial and organoid systems. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, as always, we're reminding our listeners about the ISSCR 2023 annual meeting taking place both virtually as well as in person in Boston, Massachusetts. Advanced registration is open until April 12th, and if you want to learn more about what you can expect from the meeting, check out our previous episode, ISSCR 2023, The Future Starts Here, with ISSCR CEO Keith Alm, President Dr. Haifan Lin, and Dr. David Scadden. Yeah, that was a great episode. I recommend you guys check that out. Kicking up the roundup, or kicking off the roundup today, I have a story that's very topical. Uh, it kind of segues with the ISSCR's major mission of translation, which is where we are in the field right now. We talk about it every episode, how close we are to you know reaping the, the benefits of these many long years of research into these groundbreaking cell-based therapies. Uh, this is about diabetes, right? You know, approximately 1.7 million children and adults in the U.S. alone suffer from type 1 diabetes. Healthcare costs associated with that exceed $15 billion annually. Um, and, you know, it's been over 100 years now. 1920 was when insulin was first discovered and used clinically. Um, this is relevant now because just in the last few days, uh, Eli Lilly has kind of bowed to the pressure com coming from many places to cap the price of insulin to $35. So it's a boon for all those uninsured and those with insurance as well who, who struggle with diabetes. But um, the reality is, is that insulin is a, a treatment, right? And while it changed type 1 diabetes from a universally fatal disease to a chronic illness, you know, taking insulin for the rest of your life isn't exactly a, a, a fix there, uh, at least 100%. So that's where a beta cell replacement comes in, islet transplantation. It's emerged as a promising, minimally invasive alternate therapy for type 1 diabetes. And there's been these phase three clinical trials uh, conducted by the Clinical Islet Transplantation Consortium that have shown safety, efficacy of this procedure with this intraportal approach, okay? And that's in the liver, in the portal vein of the liver. And that's laid the groundwork for these cell-based therapies to become reimbursable uh, with patients with severe type 1 diabetes. And that's a watershed. I mean, talking about insurance covering cell-based therapies, it's going to be a conversation we're having a lot more nowadays. But I guess uh, type 1 diabetes and these islet cell transplants are kind of the tip of the spear there. Uh, but the problem is that these same trials also show that about 80% of the time, so four out of five transplants, you need allergenic islets acquired from multiple deceased pancreas donors. And, you know, they're not falling off the shelves there, all these pancreas donors. 
Uh, so they're scarce, and that leads to a limited supply. And that 80% loss is due to the inefficiencies of using this site, this portal uh, vein approach uh, in the liver. Is you get immediate tra post-transplant loss of as much as half of that beta cell mass. Um, and also the same trials have shown there's progressive dysfunction over time with this intrahepatic islet transplantation approach, such that you have to get back on exogenous insul insulin as a supplement. Um, the other thing is now looking forward with the cell-based therapies from pluripotent stem cells, uh, the liver isn't really capable of accommodating these encapsulated islets. A lot of the, the approaches we're using now are encapsulating for this kind of immune, uh, to be immune blind or for whatever other reason. Uh, and you can't really do that into the liver. Um, and the other thing also is that when you think about any kind of cell transplant, starting from a, a pluripotent cell, you worry about uh, ter teratomas or other kind of um, growths. And when you put it in the liver, it's not retrievable, right? So with the stem cell derived islets having the potential to form teratomas, uh, that is a question. But also these cell-based therapies have much greater potential to hugely expand the supply of beta cells that are available and lead to a really common um, and practical definitive cure for type 1 diabetes. And, and there's precedent for that, right? It's been shown in these non-human primate models of diabetes and more recently and excitedly, excitingly in actual patients. Um, you've been shown that euglycemia has, has been achievable in these patients over the long term. So it's tremendous potential, but we got to watch out for how we're going to deliver these cells and get them to engraft and survive uh, for the long term, right? So the intrahepatic approach, maybe not best for all those reasons, not retrievable, can encapsulate, um, et cetera. And there's been alternative sites. I mean, it, it, a lot of alternative sites have been proposed the anterior chamber of the eye. I mean, that's a little bit uh, irksome. Uh, the testicle, same thing. Subcutaneous engraftment. A lot of things have been proposed, including the omentum. Okay, the omentum is a large peritoneal fold that connects uh, the stomach with the other abdominal organs. Um, and it's been, uh, it has a lot of advantages. Uh, it's, it's accessible through lap, lap, laparoscopic procedures. It's got a large surface area, highly vascularized. So when you're talking about any kind of engraftment, um, the idea that it would be rapidly incorporated into vascular perfusion and stay alive, um, that's an important factor. So the momentum has, has emerged as you know a great engraftment site, potentially. And about 50 years ago, even, the idea of islet cell transplant in animal models was proposed in, in momentum. And and tested it with some efficacy, but you know, here we are 50 years later. And the idea of the omentum serving as a, 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 a graft site, it hasn't been demonstrated in either non-human primates or of course humans. So that was the goal of this study by G. Lay's group at Harvard Medical School. And, and it's pretty much the, that whole run up, you pretty much know what I'm gonna say here. They use the omentum as a graft site but they engineered it a bit. They they used, uh, this is all in, in monkeys, right? So this was a really strong preclinical evidence in support of the omentum if it worked out. And they engineered 
the graft a little bit by using uh, this plasma thrombin that was derived from the actual host. So the immune question wasn't there, although immune rejection comes in in just a second. So I'm not exactly sure why, but it provided a strong matrix to kind of stick the 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 uh, grafted islet cells in the omental site. And this was an allogeneic transplant of actual uh, pancreatic beta cells, islets from a, a, another primate donor, allogeneic donor. And the payoff was they showed that within a week of the transplant, uh, each of these primates, there were three of them, achieved normal glycemia and insulin independence. And they remained euglycemic until the end of exper the experiment, which was three months later. Um, and here's the key. In each case, uh, success was achieved in islets recovered from a single donor. So I think this is kind of a template for doing islet cell transplantation that could be incorporated tomorrow with human patients and really maximize the, the scarce tissue that's available. Um, and mechanistically, they showed with histology that these grafts were really robustly revascularized and re-innervated, re um, suggesting that this is how it worked. You know, the graft side of the omentum was actually quite amenable to survival of the tissue and function. So, I mean, I wouldn't say this is a bombshell, but I th say it's a very nice story from a GLA's group in Cell Reports Medicine that I think we're going to need to see a lot more of these studies, just practical uh, tests of, of how we can get cells into people, how we can get them to survive and function in a, in a practical and you know consistent uh, way. And so I was really pleased to see this. And for me, I think about it, I do a lot of engraftment of ovarian tissue and, you know, I think that that for for me and other researchers that are looking at transplanting cells, this is uh, maybe a, a boon looking at the omentum as a graft site just for uh, testing any kind of xenograft model. So exciting work from the Lee Lab and uh, I think a, a lot of future studies that may incorporate this this approach. Yeah, it's exciting. It's, uh, like you said, not necessarily a bombshell, but a really nice tool in the arsenal for transplantation studies. The omentum is something that I didn't know a whole lot about. I don't do a lot of transplantation studies myself, but it makes sense why it could be a an attractive area for transplantation. Like you said, it's highly vascularized. And certainly this is a very, very relevant topic of discussion and worthy of discussion given all the results coming out from the Vertex trials led by Doug Melton and his group over the years. And these are things that are happening in people, these transplant, you know, islet transplantation studies, stem cell derived, derived islet transplantation. Um, and so fine tuning the correct location of where to put these things, I think is very appropriate. I think there are like definitely a few limitations to worthy of discussion here. One is that, you know, in this model system, uh, it doesn't really focus too much on autoimmunity, which is a, a big consideration when actually transplanting islets in the setting of uh, type 1 diabetes. Um, the purity of the islets that they're actually using is pretty pure from 80 to 95%, but apparently, you know, human preparations might have as many as 70% exocrine tissues that could induce inflammation and some other problems. But I think the stem cell, if you use a stem cell derived islets, that the hope is that that's going to be very pure 
99% purity of, of stem cell derived islets. So perhaps that's not a, a major concern. And then there are some differences bet- between the human and non-human primate momentum. So species specific differences to look into, but in general, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a useful tool in the toolkit for this sort of work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a long way to go here, um, particularly, I think, in terms of the immunomodulatory influence here, we still got immune suppress. And what I would like to see moving forward is how the omentum would serve as a graph site for these encapsulated formulations, because I think that's been a real obstacle. The idea that they can just exist uh, in a in an allograft without having some kind of immune interface, I think fibrosis has emerged as an issue. So I'd be interested to see how the 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 more stem cell based approaches can function the momentum, and I, I I'm hoping that uh, Dr. Lay's group or, or associated um, investigators or independent investigators of that are 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 looking into these you know the a classic encapsulation approach and how it works here, so we can get around the lifelong immune suppression that's been a huge stumbling block here. But as you said, a, a nice story in one step. Uh, one brick in the wall, so to speak. Yeah, it makes me really look forward to ISSCR for this year and, you know, in Boston and seeing what's going to happen in terms of the the Vertex trials, right? You know, Doug Melton presented some amazing results from some a few patients, you know, one to two patients that had uh, really great phenotypic restoration of, of the, the wild type phenotype and, you know, proper insulin regulation, glucose regulation after receiving these stem cell derived islet transplants. And again, that was an end of one and end of two that they presented at last, last year's ISSCR. But Hey, I mean, it's, it's a very hot topic and I have no doubt that they're going to be talking more about it this year. So moving on to something very different, this is a, a very interesting and I think very relevant paper for obvious reasons. We're still in the tail end of a pandemic. Um, And a big concern, a big area of discussion, of course, for COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 research is where did the virus come from? I mean, recently, this is unfortunately a very politically charged discussion, politically charged topic of where did the virus actually come from? I think the scientific consensus is still that uh, certain species served as a reservoir for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, such as the bat, for example. The bat is actually a natural reservoir for a, a bunch of different types of viruses. Um, and there haven't been great model systems to actually study viruses in bats and how bats can actually harbor all of these different types of viruses. Um, you know, they are unique mammals, of course, bats, they are able to fly, not unlike a lot of other mammals. They use all these different unique echolocation approaches. And most importantly, in the context of this area of study, they can tolerate a lot of different types of viruses and are serve, serve as you know symbiotic hosts for a ton of different viruses. And this is, of course, an issue when it comes to zoonosis, the transfer of viruses from, from species, other species to human, bats can be a problem, right? So perhaps it's not just SARS-CoV-2, but a bunch of other viruses that can jump from bat to human. Um, But like I said, great cellular models for studying bat biology or the response to viral infections, uh, they don't really exist. So here they made simply bat iPSCs, bat pluripotent stem cells. And this is actually a cell paper. This is uh, bat pluripotent stem cells reveal unusual entanglement between host and viruses. I was surprised that this had never been done 
to this point, the generation of bad IPSCs. And so I looked into it a little bit, and apparently there have been reports as early as 2014 of different groups generating bad IPSCs, but unfortunately no one was able to reproduce those protocols and actually make other bad IPSCs from um, from other groups that were able to, you know, they weren't able to independently re reproduce those results. So these folks um, from the lab of Thomas Swaika over at uh, Mount Sinai, just down the road from you, they were generating bad IPSCs and they, you know, wanted to generate this again as a model system for studying coronavirus infection and viral infection in, in the bat. So they created bad IPSCs from the greater horseshoe bat and also the greater mouse-eared bat. And this is a process that was not difficult. I'm just saying, oh, they made bad IPSCs. But this is something that took years for them to figure out because it wasn't just a matter of simply introducing the OKSM Yamanaka factors into their culture. They had to really tweak and refine things to, to make this happen. But once they were able to generate these bad IPSCs, they saw some really, really cool stuff. So, you know, running through the paper, initially it's just a characterization of these things using a Sendai-based OKSM approach to turn bat fibroblasts into the pluripotent stem cells, ultimately over a course of, you know, a few weeks, just like you always do, standard characterization approaches. But then it got, I think, really interesting because they took a deeper dive into the 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 iPSCs and in term especially the the viral load in the iPSCs, and they saw that there are actually a high number of endogenous viral particles and viral sequences, particularly retroviruses, that were being expressed in the bat iPSCs. And in addition to that, there are some really striking electron microscopy images in this paper that are actually showing little vesicles. This is actually in Figure Six that are showing vesicles that are apparently containing just viral particles. These aren't being infected by any virus. They're just, once these cells are reprogrammed to the IPS level, they start re-expressing those viral signatures and these endogenous viral elements to actually create virus in the IPS itself. It's, it's astounding. It's really pretty exciting, kind of scary, honestly. Um, so it tells you that this it could be a really useful model system. Again, you know, given that this is a new protocol, it's always worth reproducing in other labs that are doing bat research and COVID research. This could be a really useful tool in in the tool set for studying COVID and other viruses that have the bat as a natural reservoir. So it's it's different. It's a it's a if you if you look at a face value, you're just seeing oh they generated bad iPSCs. You know. I, there have been hundreds of different species that have been uh, that have had iPSCs generated from them, but the reason it's a cell paper is because if you take a deeper dive into what's actually going on in in those iPSCs with that reactivation of the viral proteins and the viral signatures, it's it's pretty pretty incredible. And uh, yeah, that's that's about it. I think um, we'll be I'm sure hearing more about this in the in the years to come. This is crazy to me, just because. It... Now that we got the bat iPSCs, I, I'm looking forward to the interspecies chimeras with human iPSCs or embryos in the vampire future. I think, I mean, we're right there on the precipice. <laughs> this is very exciting times. But um, in all seriousness, I'm just kind of thrown for a loop here about this whole activation of these you know, viruses in the iPS state. 
of bat cells, you know, the FBI or whatever regulatory agencies, there's a million theories, but they're now have some medium, moderate, I don't know what level of confidence, but blank level of confidence of that it was a lab leak now in China that that, that uh, accounted for the coronavirus. And um, that may not be the scientific consensus, but reading this, I'm wondering like, when you have, like, is, is that a, a vector? You have some bat somatic cells and then you reprogram them to iPS cells and these viruses come out. Are those viruses, could that escape and infect another cell line and potentially the operator? Like, do you have to beef up the BSL and any of these iPS cell line, uh, line labs where it's something that's seemingly benign and then once you change the, the cell state of it, suddenly all these viruses are activated. I mean, did the authors address the potential at all for these viruses to be dangerous to humans or is that just you know, endogenous retroviruses are only going to float around the cell? and not really do anything. You have any ideas about that or? Well, I mean, it's it's a valid question. I mean, if the bat if the bat is known to be such a powerful um source for various different types of human viruses. So I, I'm sure, I'm sure they were taking a lot of care in handling these cells. Let's put it that way. Um, because we don't want SARS-CoV-3 to happen anytime soon, right? Coming out of New York this time. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm glad Mount Sinai is a little bit uptown, but still a bit too close to home for me. Um, I've got another story here that's a little bit less unnerving uh, about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, where, you know, there's a lot of these muscular dystrophies that we describe, but Duchenne's probably the, perhaps one of the most characterized. Uh, it's progressive muscle wasting disorder uh, that it results from the abolishment of, of functional dystrophin being produced. Uh, and that dystrophin typically provides a structural stability to skeletal muscle and maintains the muscle strength and flexibility and protects the sarcolemma from contraction-induced injury. And in these DMD patients, the muscle fibers are damaged and undergo this necrosis repair cycle that progressively leads to just a failure in the stem cell pool. Um, and the stem cell pool that accounts for muscle generation it's this uh, quiescent muscle stem cells, otherwise known as satellite cells, that are mobilized in response to injury, proliferate, and then differentiate and fuse into new myofibers that reconstruct the damaged tissue. But they also maintain this pool of the, you know, uh, progenitors, the, the satellite cells. Um, and in DMD patients, that whole process is, is disrupted. Uh, the activation of of the that necrosis repair cycle constantly leads to early senescence of macrophages, the muscle stem cells, and endothelial cells, and the inflammatory, this chronic inflammatory stimulus leads to increased fibrosis, right? So that's the idea. And that's that's in in you know all the muscle cells, but there is this unique population of muscles that are the extraocular muscles. Uh, that are account for the and control the movement of the eye. And these are developmentally, anatomically, and physiologically distinct from typical skeletal muscles. And notably, and very importantly, these are spared in patients with DMD, suggesting that there's either a different physiological process, a requirement for a dystrophin there, or that they have some kind of compensatory me mechanism so that they can obviate this kind of degenerative phenotype. 
Um, and so there's this uh, study that I'm going to describe here is from Frederick Relais at the INSERM in France. And his group had previously generated this uh, frame shift uh, or frame uh, exon 52 deletion uh, of rats of the rat dystrophin gene. And these rats recapitulate the phenotype, mimic many aspects of the DMD condition, including the sparing of those uh, extraocular muscles. So same phenotype, those extraocular muscles, they hang in there. And so they used this model to try and unpack that process and understand how the muscles are spared per, per, in pursuit of some kind of therapeutic approach, perhaps, uh, presumably. Um, and what they found is that in these extraocular muscle stem cells, uh, the gene encoding thyroid stimulating hormone receptors highly expressed. And they show that uh, the activity of this thymone, uh, thyroid stimulating hormone receptor was activating these extraocular muscles. And then using uh, forskolin, so TSHR, a thyroid stimulating hormone receptor, downstream effector of that is adenylcyclase, which we all know frees up cyclic AMP and has the second messenger function, which activates protein kinase A. And, you know, cyclic AMP is a key regulator and adenyl cyclist is a key regulatory pathway in effectively all cells of the body. But what they found using forskolin, which you can use to activate the adenyl cyclist downstream signaling of thyroid stimulating uh, hormone receptor, they show that if you use forskolin, you can reduce senescence of these skeletal muscle stem cells, increase the regenerative potential and promote myogenesis. Uh, and and kind of improving the muscle function in these model rats, the rats that model Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, I mean, that's it. I, I, it's what I love about this story is that it's looking for a unique population of survivors here in the body that have some kind of physiological mechanism for getting around the phenotype of DMD, and then kind of interrogating that in a tractable model and finding an actual therapeutic, in this case, forskolin, which is a, probably a nuclear bomb to just put in the body at high levels. But nevertheless, they have a pathway here by which using the, the modus of these survivor cells, they can improve the, the phenotype of the DMD. So I love, you know, we were talking before the show, there's a, a bunch of different approaches to DMD and other muscular dystrophies kicking around. But I love to see a novel one um, that really is is cell based and, and is unearthing some novel mechanism of cell survival in the context disease. So I really enjoyed this story. Yeah, it's neat, and you learn something new every day about this particular disease. I you know I had no idea that there these intraocular muscles were resistant to the the DMD phenotype. That's pretty exciting to see. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think anybody's jumping at the gun to just give forskolin to everybody, to, to all these patients, which is, you know, obviously has its own side effects, side of, you know, issues and all of that. But I agree with you. There are a lot of really cool approaches for potentially treating DMD. We've talked to April Pyle in the past. We've talked to a bunch of folks who are doing uh, all sort of exon skipping CRISPR-Cas9 mediated correction approaches and um, you know, cell therapy-based approaches. So this is a hot area of study and there's definitely a, a cardiac angle to this as well. You know, there's a cardiac phenotype in DMD. Um, so I think, uh, but for me as, as somebody who's done a decent amount of genetics work in the past, the thing that excites me about 
studying DMD is that it is a genetically targetable disease. We know the mechanism. We know the, the gene, exactly what component of that gene needs to be fixed to, to restore the wild type phenotype. So I think, you know, no matter what approach you take if down the road, it leads to an improved uh, lifestyle and, you know, ability of life for these patients. I'm all for it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of arrows in the quiver there. And I agree with you that, that the genetic approaches seem to be the most exciting, you know, with sickle cell amongst the many hematological conditions that are being addressed genetically. And I think that that generates a lot of enthusiasm, but uh, the only challenge I think with the genetics there is delivery, right? With the blood, you can irradiate, clear out the blood or not even irradiate, suppress and then introduce a, a new genetically engineered cell that can repopulate the entire system. I think it's gonna be tougher with these systemic diseases that affect you know cells that are in place and can't be easily repopulated, which is why I think we're gonna need many different arrows in the quiver. And I think this is one that is uh, druggable uh, although we'll probably have to find something better than Forsklin, it's struggle. And I think ultimately it, it may be a combination of different therapies and these progressive diseases that delay symptom onset and uh, improve and preserve the quality of life for as long as we possibly can. You're going to have to be careful walking around Kendall Square in Boston when you go to ISSCR because there are a million biotech companies that are working on genetic modification of DMD patients and all that. So that's exactly the approach that they want to take. So we'll see. We'll see what you know. arrow in the quiver actually ultimately is successful. But there are a lot of different approaches out there to address this particular disease, which is exciting. So now we'll move on to something very different. Um this is a very basic science story with some translational application down the road, maybe. Deer antlers, something, a phrase I probably have never uttered on this particular show, deer antlers. But if you think about it, before you even dive into it, the deer antler is one of those mammalian appendages, parts of the mammalian body that has an amazing, amazing regenerative capacity, okay? We always lament here on the show, oh, the axolotl, the zebrafish, salamander, all these non-mammalian species have this beautiful propensity to regenerate their limbs. And here we are, just these useless mammals who can, can't do anything with our bodies. We can't cut off our arms, can't grow back. And uh, it's so frustrating, right? You know, I had a, I had a, a decent size cut the other day. I thought I was going to lose my finger after chopping some tomatoes, but you know, I'm, I pulled through, I'll pull through, I'll leave it at that. But hey, if I was a deer, and I'm not, uh, I would be able to regenerate in a unique way through my antlers, because apparently deer antlers are one of the most regenerative organs in the mammalian body. And what they actually found here, this is a, a science paper actually coming from, from China. Um, they found that there's a population of stem cells that's actually conferring that enhanced regenerative ability for deer antlers. Um, and these are really, really striking regeneration phenotypes that they're showing here in the deer. I mean, it's it's an annual thing. I don't know if you know, but you know, in, in the winter, deer shed their antlers and they these things grow back to gigantic proportions. Their feet, you know, huge, huge things. And apparently they're they have a regenerative ability of multiple millimeters a day and in some cases centimeters of growth a day and that takes a really powerful powerful stem cell population to actually induce that growth 
So what they actually did here was trying to figure out why the deer antler has such a powerful regenerative capacity. What are the, the cell and molecular drivers of that amazing regenerative ability? And so they did a, a single cell analysis of deer antler regrowth. Now, again, doing any sort of single cell analysis, and you're somebody who does a lot of single cell, doing this kind of thing in a non-traditional model system like the deer is, I can't imagine it's going to be easy. So kudos to the group for figuring this out in the first place. But after doing their single cell analysis of deer antler regrowth, they actually found that the earliest stage antler initiators are mesenchymal cells that express a particular homeobox gene, PRX1, um, in these mesenchymal cells. And then they actually also identified a population of antler blastema progenitor cells, or ABPCs, that developed from these mesenchymal cells, these PRX1 positive mesenchymal cells. And those are the cells that actually drive that amazing regenerative process. And now, one, I don't want to say funny, but I, I did think it was kind of funny. One of the amusing experiments that they did in this particular paper were transplanting some of these uh, PRX1 mesenchymal cells into mice. So actually they generated little mice with like rudimentary antlers, which is uh, really cute to see. I forget what figure it is, but it was um, it was a trip. As a sci-fi fan, I thought that was a trip. But they're, yeah, so that's they did this cross-species comparison to identify that ABPCs are actually present in different mammals, but they're kind of activated at a very low level. In the deer, they're very highly activated. But in vivo and in vitro ABPCs actually had a really strong self-renewal capability and could even generate osteochondral lineage cells. And this is the other reason why I think this is a science paper is because they transplanted some of these ABPCs into the bone of mice and were actually able to show that they actually induced regeneration in those bones after an injury really fast, really quickly. These are really powerful stem cell populations, these ABPCs. Um, and uh, yeah, and then they just did a bunch of characterization of the antler regeneration process in the deer from the point at which the antler actually falls off all the way to the, you know, to the full growth of the, of the, the appendage. So it's, this is one of those papers that's really far out there. Um, there's, a, I think, a really good reason why this is a science paper. This is characterizing an, an exceptionally powerful population of stem cells in the deer antler um, with uh that can actually potentially maintain that regenerative process when those stem cells are transplanted into another portion of the body, or maybe even into another species. Hmm. So sci-fi at its max here, in my opinion. Yeah, these this is out there. Both your stories, uh, Arun, today have been pretty out there. I feel like you've been walking in the woods with Hans Clevers or something. But um, <laughs> for, for this one... I was really, I found it so compelling, the idea, because of course the question, we always talk, ask a lot of all those guys, like, what's the correlate? Do we have a cell in there that could regenerate? And if so, how do we activate? Here, I love that they they did in the cross-species comparison, identify that there's this, uh, a mouse correlate, which is similar to the ABPC that's in the regenerative digit tip. Uh, I'm presuming the, the digits of the, the fingers there. Um, so, I mean, that's just such a different, uh, an anatomical localization, right? The antlers and the head, the rats and the digit tip. It makes me wonder if there is a correlative cell or a similar type cell in our bodies, where is it? And does it even matter, as you were alluding to there, if you can find the correlate cell and just activate it wherever 
it could be, you know, useful. Maybe you can direct it towards bone or other kind of mesenchymal related lineages um, to be more of like a structural regenerative uh, therapy. So I think this is very far out there, but I, I think this is one of those novel ideas that seeds a lot of new research and research direction in terms of coming out with a out of the box cell that could be really useful for osteo uh, type approaches. It gives me hope, man. It gives me hope for us big brain primates that, you know, we sacrificed our regenerative ability for the sake of our big brains, but maybe we can use our big brains to bring that regeneration back. I don't know. That's the dream. Okay. Maybe that ABP cells in the brain, although hopefully no antlers in my brain. That's enough to see antlers on the mice, Arun. I mean, how'd they get that past the eye cook? I'd love to see that. Um, anyway, we got more to come with an interview with Dr. Ryan Condor from Stem Cell Technology. But before we get there, I have a message from the company itself. Looking for more information on organoids? Download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing. This essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered. Download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid ebook. All right, you guys, today we have with us from Stem Cell Technologies, the Director of Epithelial and Organoid Systems, also adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University in the Department of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry, Dr. Ryan Condor, who is responsible for products and research and development related to epithelial tissues and organoid model systems at stem cell technologies. Prior to joining stem cell, he investigated the mechanisms of asymmetric cell division in the adult intestine with Jürgen Noblik at the Institute for Molecular Biotechnology of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. He's also been on the show a couple of times before. Dr. Condor, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you're, of course, the director of epithelial and organoid systems at Stem Cell T Technologies, Dr. Condra. And you've been with the company for a little while. You've been with the company for about a decade now and starting as a senior scientist before actually becoming associate director and then director in your division. So tell us a little bit about your role, what your day-to-day -day is like as an organoid biologist, as a manager, and really more so about stem cells push towards using these next generation 3D models, such as intestinal organoids for disease modeling. So give us a day in the life of Dr. Condor. A day in the life. Thanks, Arun. Um yeah, thanks for running running through uh, through the timeline there. It's been exactly 10 years and uh, a whole bunch of really wonderful thoughts come to me. When I when I started at, at Stem Cell, it was it was really quite a small company still and in, in R&D um, the organoid technology was just coming out and uh, at Stem Cell um, we were very much uh, a pluripotent stem cell um, based company. A lot of our, our research and products were designed around that. So when I came, it, introducing the organoids was uh, was something new, both uh, exciting for me and challenging. So my day-to-day -day back then was really uh, educating a lot of the people at stem cell, uh, introducing as much as educating, but also 
getting the labs started, really, really introducing and bringing a new system into the research and focusing on the products that the people in the world were going to need from this incredible discovery. How, how could we standardize it? How could we get it into the labs of, of everybody who wanted to use this new technology? Uh, how could we introduce it into biotech companies? So my day to day was, was right back in the lab and, um, it was it, it was really fun. It was really refreshing, uh, getting my hands back on things, um, and then uh, expanding the group out from there. Um, the transition, as you said, going to a, a associate director and now director has been has been a real change. Like it's something that most people through an academic career really have no training in. So. My day-to-day -day is not focusing on how my experiment's going to turn out, what specific questions to ask. It's more, what is the next development that's going to happen with this technology? What are, what are people going to need? Like, how do we predict this and work with them? Um, and, and in my case, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. I, I have a lot of groups that work under me now, and the, and the senior scientists who run these are... The team, the team and group leads are, are really incredible scientists. They're um, a great combination of junior people who've come up through organoid-based labs who have the latest and greatest ideas and techniques on this, um, and also uh, more experienced scientists that can naturally predict uh, where these technologies are going to go. So um, a beautiful balance. I feel really lucky to have a bit of both. Yeah, and the way you describe it there, it seems familiar to the kind of academic paradigm or template that we're also familiar with there, you know, like the, the new PI and then maybe the department chair with a, a lot of junior PIs working under them, all working towards the same, same directive, but here clearly very different um, in this industrial or commercial setting. And it's great, I should say, having you on the show because the the appeal of that, I guess, alternate industry pathway not so much an alternate anymore. It's seemingly increased um, in appeal uh, as a lot of leading researchers have stepped away from the academic ranks to join these big name ventures. I mean, we're talking about Doug Melton, Chuck Murray, Hans Clever, Zaviv Regev. Um, but these are all researchers who, who are defecting, so to speak, at the peak of their influence and achievement. Uh, so I have to ask, do you think we're in the midst of a industrial revolution, if you'll pardon the, the pun there, that will recalibrate the distribution of early career scientists and trainees between academic and commercial research environments? And if so, what impact do you think that's going to have on you know, the science? Yeah, great, uh, great way to put it. Um, it, there's, yeah, there's definitely some uh, some some key figures moving into to very very influential positions in biotech, uh, as you said. Um, whether you know whether it's a a shift, like a paradigm shift in in what's happening, I I don't know. I see it more as a, a better understanding of how these two industries worked. Um, I know when I when I left academia for uh, for biotech, um, you know, definitely and well, hopefully nowhere near the peak of my career. Um, I I didn't know what to expect. Like we didn't we didn't see this. Biotech was this kind of black box where you you know they develop things and and that was it. Um, I actually I actually recall feelings of being 
really concerned to, to, to mention to my, my mentor, I may be considering a position in biotech, um, but, but now looking out and seeing how it works and at least at stem cell, the, the integration into academic research and collaborations with academics, these two different fields can actually work together to advance the science really, because it's both, um, it's both of our intentions. So I, I hope it's not a, just a, a shift from one to the other, but more a better understanding of how the two work together. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's a new world in terms of this dynamic between industry and academia. Even you know, folks in in my position, very junior trainees, a lot of times they don't even consider that traditional academic route anymore because there are so many opportunities in industry to actually continue those collaborations as stem cell technologies very often does. So it's really a whole new world out there when it comes to these in industry academic collaborations. And I think. Organoid biology is a is a perfect ambassador in in some ways for this. You know, at the applications for organoids are expanding tremendously, and we've talked about all these applications here on the show. And so many industry partners, such as Stem Cell Technologies, are so critically involved in the work that the ac academic side of you know science is doing as well. Whether it's distributing cell culture supplies and so on, media supplies and all these kind of things. And we've talked about all these different applications of organoids on the show, ranging from disease modeling to drug screening, and actually even recently for studying evolutionary biology, which I think is a is a really exciting new application of organoid biology. Um, but kind of on the translation, more on the translational side of things, if you had to pick a particular application of organoid biology that you are the most excited about, whether it's drug screening, disease modeling, what would it be? And why are you so excited about that application? Yeah, that's uh, such a great question and probably the most difficult one you, you could ask me. I, you know, there, there's there's the obvious ones where I, you see the, the shift that you're talking about and people like, like Hans going to to Roche to seemingly introduce organoids into their drug development pipeline. So seeing you know, how we can start thinking of, uh, of treatment for patients instead of just a one-off, but as, as more a precision medicine-based approach where we can actually take our dishes of organoids and, and look at thousands of potential treatments before getting into the patients like this one, you know, this is really incredible, hoping what we can see for the next generation. But you even have topics like, like Arun, what you brought up in evolutionary bio biology, and I, this is probably Svante Pablos that you're referring to, right? We're, we're going to understand things about millions and millions of years ago. So I think we're going in both direction. I, I think I have to divide it into what I can affect rather than what I think is the most exciting because it's all exciting. It's, it's really a wonderful technology. And I think, I think you guys have done a great job through your, your podcast as well as, as bringing the key people in and asking the, the, the critical questions to find out where it's going. So yeah, I, I, I think the potential is almost endless. Well, thank you, Ryan, for that, that uh, applause there. I mean, we're humbled by the opportunity to speak to all these people about the real cutting edge science. It really is a gift to us, uh, yourself included. Again, thanks for chatting with us. But yeah, Arun mentioned it, that uh, the intestinal organoid, it's like uh, the ambassador uh, of the stem cell organoid community. Although the term organoid, a little research I did here, although the term organoid was first used back in 87, that's 1987 for all you millennials. 
to describe in vitro cultures from neuroblastoma and, and lung. It was about 20 years later that Hans Clevers nucleated the entire field with the first description of the role of LGR5, positive cells, et cetera, et cetera. Um, since then, countless studies have been performed on this very robust experimental platform. So I was really surprised. A few episodes back in the Lorenz Studer episode, we covered the story from Conrad Hochelinger's uh, group that captured an alternative form of intestinal organoid representing these is isthmus-like, it's hard to say that, isthmus-like cells. Uh, it was a revelation to me that the nuance and diversity of the organoid platforms, even, even within the same tissue, is so extensive. And while reconstructing the diverse systems in a 3D model system is a boon for translational science, as you and Arun were, were just alluding to, uh, I wonder if we'll ever get to the point of integrating individual parts into a complete system. And I know this is a, an annoying question. I hate myself for asking, but I just, as in terms of like the idea, a thought experiment, do you, do you think it's a realistic goal to like really reconstitute the whole system, not the whole body? I mean, I'm just talking about like the intestine. Um, seeing these different types of organoids as subsets with maybe all different growth requirements, et cetera, can we ever integrate them all into something that approximates the totality of a tissue or organ? And, and what do you think are the challenges to getting there? Yeah, there, there's there's nothing to hate about that question. It's, it's very <laughs> forward thinking. I, and, and, you know, personally, I love it. Um, and I think there's some really beautiful examples of it. Say, you know, I remember Hans used to used to talk about when when they came up with the model, it was it it was a small intestinal model, right? Nick Barker had discovered LGR5. They were able to mark this in the mice, and they were able to characterize the small intestine very very well. And you know, the, the main one of the main differences between small intestine and the colon is is the the, the panis cells, right? The crypts and the villi, and you have this these, these secretions coming from the support cells. And they were able to make the the colon model and seemingly say if if one part of the the intestine doesn't have this system or doesn't have this cell type, what does the other one use? So they kind of went in blind, just assuming this. And then when you had the organoid culture, you could go in and analyze it. And I think they came up with something they called deep crypt secretory cells or, or or something to the extent but that's the function of them so you know we're able to learn things that we didn't even expect from these tissues so i think i think that's the difference between a, a great new technology that's kind of a trend and one that gets legs because it has applications and then getting back to your question of can we recapitulate uh, you know entire system I think we're seeing this, but maybe not in the context of can we can we mimic an entire intestine, but can we take the parts that are important to ask a specific question? Can we ask, you know, what is the role of uh, of a vasculature or a mesenchymal component or you know, the, the, the super exciting one lately, uh, an immune component? And we know from the proof of principle experiments, you really can. And is, is really just getting the technology right to set up the system so we know the cells are behaving in their endogenous form to get the answers we want. But yeah, I, I really I really believe we're going to get to the point where the questions we can ask are much more complex. You know, whether that is, you know, answering, can we recreate the system? I guess it depends on what you want to recreate it for.
Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the next phase of organoid biology is really figuring out how you can integrate new technologies on top of the organoid system and really kind of answer these unanswered questions, such as what you're alluding to, like when it comes to vasculature and how well in, in adding a vascular system can enhance organoid biology. Or if you add the immune component in there, how can that take things like disease modeling to the next level? So I'm with you. I'm really excited about these next five-ish years in organoid biology and figuring out what happens from there. And kind of going back, we're talking about the future. Now let's go back to the past a little bit. You actually trained as a postdoc fellow at the, the IMBA, the Institute for Molecular Biology in Vienna, Austria, under the one and only Jürgen Noblick, who's actually been on the podcast as well. Uh, he's been a guest here on the show. We've also had other folks from his scientific lineage, including none other than Madeline Lancaster, cortical, cortical organoid extraordinaire, of course. So tell us about your time there in Austria, studying cell division in the adult intestine in the Denovic lab. And is that where you caught the organoid bug and developed a passion for the area? So just tell us kind of about that time, that critical time in your training. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm always happy to talk about that. Um, yeah, Jurgen uh, Jurgen's lab was was just an incredible place. Like uh, to be a postdoc, where I, th I think we know you get this kind of unique middle ground, where scientifically you're independent, yet you have somewhat of a safety net, uh, still the guidance of of a mentor and. Yeah, and, and Jürgen was, was mentor extreme. He had this this beautiful balance of knowing um, when to push really hard and then potentially when to back off. And we were in this lab with just this, this incredible group of scientists. Like you can you've met you've met Jürgen, so you can imagine the kind of PhD students and postdocs he attracts. Like like Madeline used as an example. Um, so. You know, a really incredible experience, maybe more just scientifically than organoid based. Like we covered a lot of different things there. Um, there was new models being introduced when I was there. Jurgen transitioned from from Drosophila to mice to to obviously to to human cells in in, in Madeline's uh, cerebral organoids. But it was you know, this 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 fearlessness. I I think he taught like. Uh, you know, really being able to do these things that um, were the hard challenges. So I think that was the most, you know, one of the biggest parts um, that I learned there. When when you speak specifically about the organoid side, um, yeah, Madeline was a, a few few ba uh, bays down when I was there. So we, we got to see the origins of the cerebral organoid in, in lab meetings and I, you know, I recall some of the famous images in the paper, this this one where you're almost getting like retinal progenitors. Um, we all saw this and it just, it stunned our group meeting. It was it was great. Like that was the level of science that was being done in the lab. So um, really incredible to be around that. But I think, I think the organoids came from um, both that transition transition into it, but also that, that Hans, Hans and Jürgen were, were in close contact and, um, a lot of uh, a lot of the meetings, Jurgen was was very good at introducing his 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 people to the to the the right connections and and uh, Nick Barker also spent some time uh, or giving talks at at uh, at IMBA. So I got to know him before the actual uh, technology was even published. So 
coming from the intestine, working on stem cells, a new marker for a human intestinal stem cell being found, uh, Toshi coming up with the organoids in the lab. It was all just a beautiful transitional time where, yeah, I had multiple influences and I'm really fortunate that they were all great. Yeah, your enthusiasm there and recollection is really infectious. And I was really struck by what you said about the fearlessness. I think that's the the what I remember most fondly about the training period. If you have a great mentor, they really empower you and act like you can just be irresponsible and just throw out ideas, even though they know that they got to get the grant. They they don't they don't let you know the, the pressure. That's the best kind of mentor that they're feeling, and they unleash you to be your most creative. Um, so yeah, I can recall that fondly, but it seems a bit a bit different from the the reputation that you get in like an industrial setting. I mean, of course, the entrepreneurial fearlessness for starting your own company, startup, that's all familiar. That's a trope that we're all really uh, beat over the head with with the whole Silicon Valley cult culture, et cetera. But you know, the the reputation of an established industrial giant like stem cell or any other big names, He's not one of fearlessness. It's a, a more, I think, conservative archetype, or at least that would be the, the expectation at, at face value. Um, but you've had, the, you know, both sides of that coin, right? You've had a traditional postdoc, postdoc experience, a powerhouse academic lab, or at a cross-section of multiple powerhouse labs, really. Um, and then you brought that into the industrial setting. Uh, so you, you've seen the training experience from both sides. Do you think the way that you foster scientific education and maturation of your trainees at stem cell technologies differs from the way the academic lab would? Do you think there are advantages, disadvantages to the types of training that either academic or industrial uh, settings provide? Yeah, interesting concept there. Um, I guess, I guess, first off, when we, you know, the way we described Jurgen and, you know, your postdoc experience, and I think you nailed it, you know, really, really uh, how the feeling is. Uh, you know, Alan Ease, the president of Stem Cell, really fits into that same kind of kind of mentorship that, that I'm describing and, and the fearlessness. And although I'm sure there are some biotechs that are, are extremely rigid and, and, and conservative and limited to their approach, I, Alan really fosters a, a culture of creativity and, and again, fearlessness. Um, the organoids are a perfect example. It's something stem cell had never dabbled in. And, you know, the encouragement I got from him and, and everybody else there to, to just find a way and to make it happen without really knowing what its potential was. Like, you guys remember when it came out, like, it was there was review articles that says it's going to it's, you know to be the greatest thing in regenerative medicine and precision medicine and disease modeling and drug screening <laughs> but thinking back to a lot of new technologies that's that's what you hear right so there is an appropriate level of skepticism i think that's necessary in starting that and i really wasn't bound by that like i had the the support that i needed to really drive it forward and obviously with the, the folks you mentioned earlier and, and hundreds of others who are really coming up with the great academic discoveries driving this and importantly demonstrating what the, the capabilities of this organoid technology was, I, I think it, it, it blossomed at stem cell. And then when you get back to how, how I treat my scientists, I 
you know, I, I try to learn from every mentor and you, you, you talked about Jorgen and I, I did spend some time in Hans's lab and, uh, and then Alan at, at stem cell, but even right in my PhD, I, I, my, my very first mentor was, it was a guy named Nick Harden who, you know, basically taught me the, the basics of developmental biology and introduced scientific curiosity. So I've tried to take from all of my mentors, again, which I've been extremely fortunate to have. And and that's what I try to apply to all of the people that work for me. But again, I've had people who've also come from great mentors. So this combining of styles and having an acceptance and you know, maintaining that curiosity and instead of directing, listen a lot to what they have to say. It's It's worked out pretty well, I guess. Yeah, I would say so. And it sounds like to me that one common thread that's been throughout all your training experiences is working in environments that really encourage a sense of fearlessness in pursuit of a science and pursuit of really excellent cutting edge science, whether it's an industrial environment like stem cell technologies or whether it's various academic environments. I like to think that that's where scientists are at their best. And, you know, you've been at stem cell for, for a while now, and we've actually had the good fortune of visiting stem cell in Vancouver, not too long ago and saying, Hey, to the folks at the headquarters. Um, I also managed to experience the magic that is Tim Hortons, which is uh, obviously a critical staple of Canadian life. And of course we soaked in the amazing scenery and the natural beauty of the area. And I'm still trying to make it out to Whistler for some, for some skiing one of these days, we'll see what happens. But you've lived most of your life, a lot of your life in that area, in the Vancouver area, of course, having trained internationally as well uh, for a few years. But Vancouver itself has become such a hub for biotech recently, in part because of the growth of stem cell and other companies like it, and all the great universities nearby, Simon Fraser, you know, the University of British Columbia. So give us your pitch. I mean, I don't think there needs to be really a pitch. Vancouver kind of sells itself, but Give us your pitch for living in this area. Why should folks in the life sciences around the world keep Vancouver on their radar? Yeah, those are, uh, it's really nice to hear, Arun, and they're very complimentary uh, uh, things to say about it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I love Vancouver. I'm a, I'm a proud Canadian, although I, I, I will encourage you next time, um, don't go to Tim Hortons. I, I have a, a wonderful coffee machine in my office and, uh, <laughs> and there's, there's many other ones around. Um, but from the, the biotech emerging uh, in, in Vancouver, I, I, I love this. It's, it's, it's so encouraging, like from, from stem cell, what we've always had is it's been a, a fairly large biotech company. We didn't have the the constraints maybe of, a, of an immediate startup when when I started. Um, but we also benefited from this. We 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 got a lot of people from the local universities, although we do get people from abroad and across North America as well. Uh, but with uh, with the onset of of these new startups coming and what they were doing, and I think combining this with um, you know the, the SARS-CoV-2 crisis, which the, the world had, seeing how these companies could start working together, seeing how everybody had their individual progress or contribution, and how fast the science had to progress during this time was really exciting. And if you start going through the checklist of everything that Vancouver biotech companies provided to this in terms of, you know, 
basic analysis, which which we at Stem Cell collaborated with with people in, in both China and, and Sweden to come up with uh, key publications, but also you know, the delivery systems in Vancouver, potential um, potential other treatments from other biotech companies, and I hope this is all brought to light and people see Vancouver as. You know, not just a pretty place to live with great ski resorts. Um, again, let me know when you're coming a room. We'll make sure uh, we get you to Whistler. But uh, you know, really, a place where science could be driven. It's not the Bay Area or the Boston area or, or you know, or the or the great uh, local places in Europe. Well, I'll tell you my takeaway from the Vancouver trip, which was my second to visit Stem Cell Technologies, was was how nice and patient the Vancouverians, if that's how you call them. Maybe it's all Canadians, but the, the, everyone was so nice and patient. Um, and it could have just been me pumping out this hapless tourist vibe, but I was approached unsolicited more than once by pe people just volunteering help, asking if I needed help. Do you need some help? Do you, you need some directions? Um, so, I mean, I was overwhelmed. It, it was like a Locals helping hapless tourists was seemed to be the motto of Vancouver, which aligns well with the culture of stem cell technologies, where the motto is scientists helping scientists. And, and you alluded to the COVID uh, uh, crisis and response from stem cell technology. That, that culture is really in evidence there. It's major cell paper that you collaborated on with Joe P. That's Joseph Penninger, our guy. Been on the show a couple of times. You guys collaborated during the pandemic. And of course, I mean, we know stem cell technologies provides reagents to labs all over the world, but that alone doesn't usually merit authorship in such a big and high impact story. So just share with us uh, to finish here, the first portion of the interview, how did that collaboration come around and, and how does it really, you know, how is it representative of that stem cell motto and culture? Yeah, good question. When I was when I was referring to key publications, I actually I actually wasn't referring to that one as much. Um, Stem Cell collaborated on on some of the original sequencing on on the origins of, of the virus. So, to me, that one's a great one. Um, yeah, obviously, I was really happy and and, and proud to contribute to the the, the, the cell one as well. Um, how how did it start? Um, yeah, you know, it's like most things with with with, with Yosef. Uh, who I again I was I was very lucky. Yosef uh, was the 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 director of of Imbo when I was there. So, you know, as much as I have told you, I've learned from Jurgen a lot. I was able to be around Yosef and see how he did things and see how his lab his lab performed and you know saw the you know the incredible confidence and and ability he has as a scientist, but also you know, he. You end up friends at some point. So I remember when uh, when when the virus was first first being talked about, and I I don't know if it was the same same in your area, but uh, our our local news it was it was almost it almost seemed as there's this thing on the other end of the world that was you know obviously a horrible tragedy, but this concept that it was it was going to be a pandemic and making it around the world was was really not caught on by the by the news outlets yet and i, I got a text from yosef talking about a, a previous technology he had working on on ace uh, ace 2 protein and it was extremely cryptic it just says it has to be ace 2 and uh, you know to 
if I, if I can pass on a bit of advice, when, when people like Yosef, uh, when you're lucky enough to have them in, in your career, when they come up with things, you first accept this and agree and say, absolutely, Yosef, let's go, and then figure out what you're doing after, which is, is really what happened. And the speed, again, which everybody was experiencing around the world, which we had within you know, a day of a day of email exchange and texts, we you know we had an isolated form of the virus localized in Sweden that we could work with. We had his company, which could provide the actual reagents to see if we could we could really dampen this response. We had the organoid technology, which was up and running in various different tissue models and collaborators we brought in to look at the effects on all of this. So. Yeah, it's an incredibly fun experience, but yeah, the, the take-home message is when when you're fortunate enough to have people like Yosef coming up with these ideas for you, you you just ride them and contribute where you can. That's an amazing story. I mean, a text from Dr. Yosef Penninger starting this incredible collaboration. Wow. I mean, we can dream of things like that in the academic and industrial world, but you're very well connected to these giants in biotechnology, both overseas and also just down the road. So I think it does does definitely benefit you here at Stem Cell Technologies. And so thank you so much for, for being on the show. We're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions before you let you go. And you know, these are science peripheral, uh, not directly related to the work that you're doing. But if you had one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, because, you know, you just don't have time to do these things since you're the director now of an org of a division at Stem Cell, what is that hobby that you would pursue? Um, and yeah, let's start there. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I don't think when you said the, you know, the timing to pursue hobbies, is that's not specific to me. I think we all as scientists dive into our passion and uh you know limits what we can do um I, I think probably like most scientists i'm curious about everything i want to do everything um one thing i've always been, been drawn to is, is art I've, I've always been an art lover i was uh, i was lucky enough to, to spend a lot of time in vienna which you know is, is one of the pinnacle cities for this we had new exhibitions coming to uh, to the local museums every three months or so. So got to experience a ton of it. But, you know, thinking back to early childhood, I, I used to draw strict stick figures and and I tried to progress. And I had, a lot of my close friends are, are, are really, really great artists now in, in some form or another. And, uh, you know, I, I just never have it. Like I, I know Malcolm Gladwell believes 10,000 hours makes you an expert on anything. I, I might I might be an outlier of his outliers. I, I think in ten thousand hours I would draw better stick people, but um, no, I uh, I would I would never be the artist. Well, I'd like to see the stick figures that you draw after ten thousand hours. I'm sure they're the most immaculate, perfect stick figures that have ever existed. So the next question, and well, this is the last question we'll ask you for as part of this uh, this interview, and I guess it kind of goes hand in hand with what we just asked you. If you're not a scientist, what would you be? But you're you're not allowed to say artist, obviously. So <laughs> anything other than artist. <laughs> yeah, we've already established that's not an option anyway. Um, I, I think it, you know, if I wasn't a scientist, I I would be a chef and and I, I think this is because I think of a chef as a scientist, right? You're, you're conducting experiments, uh, you know, sometimes multiple times a day, you get immediate data 
and feedback on uh, on what you've done. You know, depending on your family, sometimes the feedback goes multiple ways. Um, but uh, I, I just find this fascinating. It's something you can continuously dive into, uh, experiment as 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 wildly as you want, and and come up with it. And I, I guess compared to pure science, um, you really can enjoy the the you know the fruits of your labor uh, immediately. So I, I've always been drawn to that. Well, I'll say, I mean, you could keep the stick figures, but uh, I'm waiting to see what, what you're cooking up next in the lab, Ryan. It sounds very exciting. And I will say also, you know, as, as someone who loves to cook, you just got to watch that when you bring the kids to the lab. I mean, my, my young one, when he was about five, came into tissue culture and took a look at all that, you know, red aspirate and uh, thought it was Kool-Aid or something and forever was asking me, can I have some of that smoothie? Can I have some of that smoothie from your work? So, I mean, keep keep the kids away from the biohazards. Um, and that goes for the kitchen too. Although I'm betting that you're you're pretty good with uh, with a chef's knife and, and a saute pan. We'll have to get together one time for a dinner party. But uh, not before uh, we thank you for sharing all this, these kernels with us and our listening audience. It's really been a joy talking to someone from the other side of the aisle and hearing your unique insights. I mean, my first thing, I'm going to tell my kid to go to IMBA, where you got all the greatest minds in the world and all the great culture as well. Um, thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us for this chat. No, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed the questions. Um, as I I'm sure you you saw it was a, a trip down memory lane, which uh, I, I really have such great memories of every part of my career. So, yeah, thank you. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you guys so much for listening. Until the next episode, I think Arun is going to be walking in the woods with Hans Clevers looking for new stories and stem cells. Just wait and see what he comes up with.